Good morning, church. Let's go ahead and pray to the Lord. Father, as we assemble together and quiet our hearts for this uh, moment of study and awaiting for you to speak to us, I pray that you would remove any obstacles and that your word would be preached clearly. I pray that we would feel um, the weight of your truth. Um, many of us have grown around the Bible uh, for so long that oftentimes we come to Scripture without realizing um, the, the kind of weight, the kind of authority that, that your word bears in our life, that we need to tremble, that we need to, Lord, uh, be obedient, knowing who speaks to us. And so we pray that you would speak to us and that the Holy Spirit would come and, and would truly comfort our hearts this morning. We thank you. We believe in the power of your word. We believe in the power of the Spirit to come and to do exactly that because that is the reason why Paul wrote these words to encourage us, to warn us, and to comfort us. And so help us, Lord, to realize that we got to please you in the way we deal with death. We got to please you in the way we prepare for death, in the way we grieve for those who have died in faith, and in the way we just deal with life right now, in, in warning people about death. Oh, Lord, give us grace, I pray, to see this, to believe it, and to apply it in our lives. We thank you. We praise you. Ask these things in Christ's name. Bless your word now. Amen. Well, it's great to be here once again to stand before you and deliver the word of God. I invite you to turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and if it's not apparent by now, we are going to be talking about hope. This morning, the study is hope, and I hope that uh, those of you who are lacking hope this morning can walk away uh, renewed and just rejuvenated and comforted in Christ. You know, you probably heard this saying that a man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about uh, four to maybe, if you're a superman, eight minutes without air, but only a second without hope. And I think there's a lot in that statement, especially that last phrase. Once you lose hope, oftentimes it seems like this is it, like I, I don't need to pursue anything in my life. Hope is not merely a big you know, Christian buzzword. Hope is what sustains our life. It's what the writer of Hebrews says anchors our souls. It's what allows us to go further even when we seem like, it seems like there's really nowhere to go. You and I both know that sometimes we face moments and in fact extended periods and seasons of hopelessness. We have no hope. It feels like all hope is lost. We lose really our sense of purpose. We lose sense of direction. We lose sense of awareness and it becomes obvious that uh, we're no longer anchored. And you guys all know what that feels like. Perhaps there's no greater event that ushers in hopelessness than the event 
of death. More specifically, the death of a loved one. In these moments, you're forced to re-examine literally everything. Your life, your purpose, your relationships with others, even your faith in God is re-examined. And one common factor that all people all over the world, everywhere, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, experience, regardless of your religious background or lack of it, is the presence of grief. All of us go through this. We, we simply cannot explain. We cannot excuse it. We cannot escape it. You know, I've been to many funerals, even in my short life, attending the memorial and burial services of both the unbelieving dead and the believing dead. And this much has become very obvious, that there is a world of difference between grief with hope and grief without hope. And this is exactly where we find ourselves here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And I will remind you of the context that we've been in beginning with chapter 4. I'll read you the first two verses. Follow along with me. Finally, then, brethren, Paul writes, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of Jesus. And you can take these two verses and you can use them as a somewhat of a heading for whatever follows along further down. And so in verse 3, Paul now, we've unpacked these verses. He talks about how we ought to please God in our purity, in our sexuality. In verse 9 through 12, Paul now starts talking about how we can please God in genuine love and work. And now in verse 13, Paul switches gears a little bit and he says, okay, let's now talk about how you and I can please God in death. Not necessarily in your death, but how we respond to the dead in Christ. Because a lot is at stake when your loved one dies. How will you respond? And the way you respond basically tells you and others about your faith, about what you know to be true, about the kind of Christ you believe in and the kind of gospel that you've accepted. And so here we are in verse 13 Paul begins this discussion. How do we please God in this response? You know, reading the New Testament, it becomes apparent that the early church, the first century church, believed that there is a great chance of Christ's return that it will happen during their lifetime. I mean, you, you, you just can't miss it. You read epistle after epistle, and you just, you're just overwhelmed with this sense. Even Paul himself, for instance, in verse uh, 15 here, look at it, chapter 4, verse 15. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of Christ, what he is telling them, what he's assuming, that there is a great chance that Christ will come now, and we will be alive, and we are those who remain in verse 17, he repeats the same thing. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up. There's a great chance that they were thinking, as even as they were writing, and even as people were coming into the church, part of the reason why they were so excited about preaching the gospel of Christ is because of the eminency of his return. 
It was important that they deliver this truth to others, and that's what Paul commends them for in chapter 1. We praise God because you are on fire for the gospel, and it's going from you, and it's impacting others, bringing in people because Christ is coming. And apparently, someone in this church, in this very young church, as we already know, dies. He goes to be with the Lord, as we know. And this event here disturbs the entire community of faith to the point where Timothy, after he comes back to Paul, he probably relates these issues to Paul and he says, listen, they're disturbed because of this event. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the spirit, he writes to them. He literally, the, the whole community is dumbfounded as to why he died and will he miss out on the return of Christ? We don't know why he died. Perhaps it's natural causes. Perhaps if you read the word carefully, 1 Thessalonians specifically, on more than one occasion, Paul alludes to severe persecution. I mean, these guys are going through intense suffering, and maybe, just maybe, someone dies for the sake of Christ. Again, we're reading into the white spaces, but the, someone dies and it disturbs the community. You know, today, most of us, we, as we live, we expect to die. We expect to die rather than to see the return of Christ. I think that's how we're living. The, the last 2,000 years of Christianity has, has conditioned us to better prepare for death rather than prepare for the return of Christ, for better or for worse. That's just the reality. But for the early church, it was not so. Think about this. You're living in times where only 20, 30, 40 years, okay, if you're a young teenager here, if you're 12 or 13, your parents lived through the crucifixion and they lived through the ascension of Christ, I mean, that's recent. And so they're living through this, and the words of Christ is, I am coming back in the same way that I just left. So be ready, be vigilant, I'm coming back. And with that thought and awareness, they're running around, praising the Lord, extending their hands and their arms and their feet and their belongings to the community and bringing in more people to be saved, knowing that Christ may be around the corner. He is coming back. Look what Paul says to them, to Thessalonians. We don't need to look too far, but look what he says in verse 10 of chapter 1. Verse 9, he says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a response we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And check this out. After your repentance and after your return to a living God, he says, And to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Uh, what he is saying here, not just to die and to be in heaven with the Lord, but as you've returned and as you are saved and converted, you are anxiously waiting, what? The Son from heaven. You are waiting for the return. You are waiting for that moment when, when you will see him. Just as he ascended and your parents told you about it, he is coming back down. That's how imminent they felt the second coming of Christ. And living with this expectation, all of a sudden, someone dies in this new congregation. And now the question that these believers are facing is this, because they have died before the return of Christ, have they completely missed out on the opportunity to meet and greet Jesus? What happens 
afterwards. They're gone. We're still here. We're expecting Christ to come back. But what happens to him or what happens to her? And the question that's rooted in that question is this, really. What happens after you die? What happens after you die? If you were to die now, do you miss the return of Christ? Uh, What about your future hope? What about the salvation that is promised all over the scripture? The, The final product of our salvation. How will that be delivered to us? What is gonna happen to the one who's in the grave? And that disturbed them. So in their struggle to understand and cope with this loss, they were losing hope. Their faith is being rocked. For all their strong grip on Christian doctrine, as we truly see here in 1 Thessalonians, the Thessalonians were missing something very essential, that the resurrection of Christ guarantees the resurrection of the believers who have died in Christ before his return. Perhaps Paul had taught them this before, because on more than one occasion he says, hey, we wrote to you before, we wrote to you before, we told you these things before. But, but in the midst of persecution, they were forgetting to apply this truth. And so as a good shepherd and a good pastor, Paul instructs and counsels these dear believers on how they are to experience the comfort of Jesus Christ and the full fullness of hope in the midst of dealing with the death of a loved one. And it was relevant to them then. It is as relevant to us right now, both in preparing for death and dealing with the death of our loved ones. I mean, even in our season right now, even in our church, we're grieving. There are families who are grieving still the loss of their loved ones. What do we do and how do we get beyond that? So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll begin with verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And here's what Paul is, is communicating to this community that is rocked by this death. He is virtually saying this. The centrality or the certainty of Christ's death and resurrection gives us great hope and comfort when we grieve the death of fellow Christians. The certainty of Christ's resurrection and death must give us hope when we do in fact grieve those who have passed away as believers. So if you're taking notes here this morning, Here's a simple three-point outline for you to follow. Number one, we're going to talk about the concern. Number one, we're going to look at Paul's counsel. Number two or three, we're going to look at comfort, Paul's comfort. Number one, the concern. And if you were to just summarize verse 13, 
here's Paul's concern, that ignorance of doctrine leads to hopelessness. Ignorance of doctrine leads to hopelessness. Look at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Ignorance of doctrine leads to hopelessness. We do not wish to be you to be ignorant. That's exactly what he's saying here. We don't wish for you to, to be ignorant about those who have died But he doesn't say those who have died. He says those who are asleep. Those who are asleep. That's a metaphor or a euphemism that he uses for the dead. Three times, in fact, in in this passage, in verse 13, and in verse 14, and in verse 15, he refers to the Christians who die as those who simply rest. As those who take a long, extended nap. Why? Because Christians who die, they don't die in that sense of a word. They simply rest their bodies, their spirit goes up to heaven to be with the Lord until that final time when the trumpet sounds and they are called to get up and they get up. And so Paul says here, men, women, church, brothers, sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant because ignorance of doctrine, this specific doctrine, leads to hopelessness. We don't want you to be misinformed. Why? So that, this is your purpose statement here, so that you will not grieve as do the rest. Notice what Paul says here. He says that grief is universal. Grief is universal. We all experience grief because in one way or another, we are all affected by sin. What does it mean to grief? What is the essence of grief? Grief is sorrow, it's, it's uh, sadness, it's feeling this hurt. You may recall John 11. John 11 is where Lazarus passed away. And when he died, and when Jesus shows up at the scene, you have Mary and Martha who are grieving. You could just imagine their sorrow. And they're coming up to Jesus and you said, Jesus, if you were here, our brother would have been alive. They were grieved to the point where Jesus himself, in John 11, 31, says as he was approaching the grave, Jesus wept. So obviously grief, feeling this sadness, this intense emotion of sorrow, is something that is common to those who believe, to those who honor Jesus. The presence of grief is not a bad thing because we live in a sinful world. In Acts 8, chapter 2, or in Acts chapter 8, verse 2, we find Christians mourning over the death of Stephen, who was just stoned to death. We deal with this on a daily basis. We experience sorrow and hurt in just our daily interactions. Remove death out of it. We experience this emotion all the time. But although grief is universal, especially when it comes to the loss of loved ones, this particular grief that Paul is describing here in verse 13 describes those who are hopeless. Describes those who are hopeless. 
And here's what Paul says. There is a type of grief that is often exhibited in the world around us that we who believe in Jesus simply shouldn't have. Because the reason why this type of grief is expressed is due to uncertainty or ignorance of what happens after death. There's a type of grief that is often exhibited in the world, and that type of grief is directly tied to the ignorance or the uncertainty of what happens after you die or after someone else that you know of died. You know, when was the last time you had a chance to just chat with others who are not of faith just and ask him a simple question, hey, dude, what's beyond the grave? What do you think happens after you die? If you just punch in, you know, what happens after death, open up Google and, and Google that, you will have so many answers. You will have um, so many step-by-step procedures on how to prepare and what to expect. But almost none will be this procedure here. You know, there are many who say... Um, that after you die, you, you, you have soul sleep. You know, you just simply rest, your soul rests, and then something else happens to it, some millennia afterwards, and, and, then, uh, and then you wake up, and we really don't know what's going to happen after that, but immediately after you die, you soul sleep. That's a position that's advocated by J-dubs, Joel Witnesses. There's another position that, that says, um, you know, you just become annihilated. You're done. You just do what you want. You live however you want. And after you breathe your last, we're done. We're over. Um, it, it's a position that, that's been accepted by uh, SDA, uh, but they modify that position and say, those who believe in Christ, they'll be with Christ. Those who do not believe with Christ will just suffer for, I don't know, couple thousand years, and then because God cannot endure eternal punishment, they, he will just annihilate them and they will disappear completely. There's also an idea if, if you have a um, couple guys show up at your door and you ask them, hey, uh, um, elder so-and-so, what happens after you die? Um, if they know what they teach, they will tell you that, you know what, you, brother, can become a god, and if you're really good, you may even own your own planet. Sounds fascinating. There's a position that, that's becoming very prominent in the States, and that is of reincarnation. We encounter that on campus all the time, at least when, when I was there. And it's this idea that if you in this life can be a very good boy or a very good girl, and after your death, you may actually reincarnate and you can become whatever you want to be, a great, I don't know, mighty oak tree, or maybe look like the person that you always admired. But if you're bad, right, if, you, if your merits don't measure up, you may become a rat or something along those lines. You know, there are many theories and many speculations about the afterlife, but think about the implications of all of these positions for us, for those who believe. What you think about afterlife determines what you do with your life. And Paul understands that. 
obviously, when you don't fully know or, or don't understand what happens to your body, what happens to your spirit after you die, it leads to hopeless grief and despair. It's what author of uh, Hebrews probably had in mind when, when he describes a group of hopeless pagans as he refers in Hebrews 2.15 to those, quote, who through death or fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Man, people are afraid to die, and when they do, those who are closest to them have real, no real idea of what happens to them. So here is why Paul writes. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant Church, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are not left to speculation. We have the revelation of God's word for us. And we're not sitting around and we're not Googling around what happens to us after we die. We go to the word of God and the word of God gives us clear direction of what to expect and how to prepare. This word of God is written by the Holy Spirit of God. And we must saturate our minds and, and not be ignorant about the doctrine in order to know how to live and in order to know how to die. We have been given a clear picture of what will happen in the end times. So we do not speculate, but we are 100% certain. We grieve. Absolutely, we grieve. We grieve now. There are families who are grieving now. But man, we do it with hope, knowing what's here. So first is Paul's concern. Ignorance of doctrine leads to hopelessness. Having expressed his concern for these believers, now Paul, as a caring shepherd, proceeds to give them counsel. Okay, how are we going to get out of this hopeless situation if there are some in the church who are hopeless? What is his approach? Well, his approach is very simple. He goes straight to the gospel. And check out his counsel. That's your, your second point, Paul's counsel. And that is, in essence, this. If you identify with Jesus in life, you will spend eternity with him. I mean, that's pretty simple. If you identify with Jesus while you live, when you die, you will continue to identify with Jesus. And everything that is true of Christ will become true of you. Isn't that a great position to hold? Why can I, or should I say, must Christians grieve with hope? Look at verse 14. For, for. This is Paul's basis for what he said prior to that. I don't want you to be ignorant. For, let me give you some truth. Let me give you a doctrine here. Let me infuse some reality, scriptural truth and foundation. For. And verse 14 is the most important verse in this section here. If you miss verse 14, you miss the rest of it. In fact, none of the rest of the things that Paul gets to are true. Because, he says this, we happen to know someone who died, went into the grave, and came out alive. We must grieve with hope. Because we know Christ who died, who went into the grave, and on the third day resurrected, having this picture and believing in that, we grieve with hope. Not like those who are hopeless. Since we believe, verse 14, for since or if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Isn't that the essence of the gospel? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4 says, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. That is the gospel. 
Since your loved one, he basically tells the church, died believing the sufficiency of Christ's death for him, for their sins, they will be gathered up to Christ in due time. It's all about, church, who you and I identify with. How do you prepare for death? How do you prepare to mourn hopefully and grieve hopefully? It's all about who you know during your life. It's all about who you identify with when you are alive. And Paul, I think, makes it very clear here. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. With him, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. It's, it's this identity of being placed into Christ. Look at verse 16. The dead in Christ will rise first. If you die apart from the Christ, you will not rise, at least during this resurrection. But if you died hidden in Christ, if you believe in the sacrifice and the resurrection of Christ, you will be raised in Christ. Verse 17, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Your identity with Christ now will be true of you all the way throughout eternity. And so that's why when your loved one in Christ dies, you grieve, but your grief is completely different than the grief of the world. Why? Because he identified or she identified with Christ. And that is your hope. If you believe and identify with him, you will be gathered up. This word here in verse 14, God, even so, God will bring with him, he will collect all of them. It doesn't matter where he's buried. It doesn't matter if he's missing stuff, limbs or whatever it is, if he's a donor and his heart is gone, he will be gathered up to Christ, with Christ. And that is our hope. This is the promise because Jesus is our hope. So brother or sister, if, if you're grieving here, may your grief this morning be accompanied with much hope, knowing that your loved ones who have died in Christ will not be forgotten. They will not miss out on the return of Christ. They have, in fact, here, as we will look at, they have a very special place in God's plan of redemption. Look at the prominence of the sleeping saints as Paul gets to it here. Before we do that, in verse 15, look at the beginning for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. He, he prefaces whatever else he's going to say now with this statement. We say to you by the word of the Lord. Does this mean that Paul is now inferring something from Christ's previous teaching that Christ taught something? Or is this new revelation that Paul now is giving us here in Thessalonians? And if we just read through the accounts of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we won't find any kind of reference to what, what Paul is talking about here that came from the lips of Christ. But he says here, for we say to you by the word of the Lord, what this most likely means is that Paul, remember, as a prophet, he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is giving us new revelation in addition to what the church has already been given. We say to you, by the word of the Lord. If you recall John 16, in John 16, the upper room discourse, Christ is just about ready to go and, and sacrifice himself. He says, but when, Acts, or John 16, three through four, uh, 13 through 14, he says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he speaks, he will speak 
but whatever he hears, rather, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. And this is what Paul is saying here. What I am telling you is the word of the Lord, because the Spirit is giving this revelation through me so that I can encourage you. We just read at the beginning of the service from 1 Thessalonians 15, 51, where Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. I'm telling you something that wasn't revealed before. And then he, look, look what he says here. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The coming of the Lord. This is the third time that Paul is referencing the coming of the Lord in this letter, which is a very special appearing. And this coming here is a very technical term, uh, the coming or the advent or the arrival here, um, that, that is in the Roman culture, whenever you heard the word advent or whenever you heard the word coming here, um, it, it will, you'd be very familiar with that term. It, it was a reference to the coming or the appearance of a, of a Roman dignitary or even uh, Caesar himself. It was a special event. Uh, when, when they came to your city from the glorious city of Rome, they came to your village or something, the city was excited. They came with pomp and they came with huge procession. And, and as they would approach the gates of your city, the trumpet would sound, announcing the arrival of this VIP. And they would line up together. And then dozens and dozens of the noble citizens of your city, they would come out to meet this dignitary outside of the city, welcome him, bow down to him, and then this whole party and the whole procession would unite together and go right back into the city, and that's when they're going to have the biggest party. The, the entire city would be in awe. Whenever they heard the announcement, the coming, the arrival of so-and-so, they knew what to do. And so the New Testament authors, along with P, uh, Paul now, they take this technical terms, term and they apply it to Jesus Christ. And they say, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, there will be a procession. And there will be a VIP. He is the most dignified person who ever walked the earth. And he will come. And there will be trumpets. And there will be loud shouts, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And so, verses 16 and 17, as we look at them, you can divide them into real four subpoints here. First, Paul talks about the return. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Remember, after the ascension, after his resurrection, Christ ascended, sat down at the right hand of the Father. And according to Romans, he is now interceding for us. He is now praying for us. But there will be a time when that Jesus Christ, where our Lord, he will come down from heaven. When he will, verse 16, himself will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangels, and with the trumpet of God. And look what happens next. The resurrection takes place. And the dead in Christ will rise. Your family, 
your friends who have died in Christ, believing in Jesus, will see him first. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that hopeful? And that's what Paul wants them to, to understand. When they died, they didn't miss out on, on the return of Christ. They will be the first one affected by the return. Don't worry about them if they died with Christ. In fact, don't worry about them if they died without Christ. You can't really do much about that. But your hope is in the fact that they believed in Jesus. And if they did, there will be this resurrection. The Thessalonians believers, they were worried about them. But Paul gives them this beautiful picture of hope. Every Christian who dies and is put in the grave will see Jesus face to face. They will be first. And that's why our grieving here on earth is radically different from the world. We have hope. As we lay them down in the casket, as we put them in the ground, we grieve knowing that we will see them if they trusted in Christ. We have the promises of God. We have the revelation of God. We do not need to speculate, brothers and sisters, because it's right here in this text. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. And then what happens afterwards? Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be cut up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Paul says the rest of us who are alive, could be right now, could be today, who remain, will be caught up together, will be snatched up in an instance. Um, this word here, the Latin Vulgate translated this word from the Greek, uh, rapio, and this is where, the, where we get the word rapture. And so that's why whenever we talk about rapture, we go straight to this text. We will be raptured. We will be taken up. And absolutely, we will be taken up. And that's the glorious aspect of the end times. We will be taken up with the Lord. But Paul uses that as a secondary thing. The worry here is about these Thessalonians who are worried about dead believers. I'm going to encourage you. They'll be raised. But let me add something. You will also be caught up with them to be with Jesus. You will be caught up to them in the clouds. And then you will meet Jesus. Thought about these clouds. Oftentimes when there's a reference to angelic beings or Jesus going up, he went up in the clouds and the clouds covered him. Probably some sort of reference to some, I don't know, heavenly vehicles of some sort that will, that will catch us and we will just ascend to, to the Lord in the air. Literally means in the atmosphere. We will meet Christ. And your loved ones will be there. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Notice that, that Paul doesn't get into the transformation of the living bodies here. Like, Paul, how are we going to be changed or, or something's going to happen to our bodies? We get that where Alec read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 15. This is not Paul's concern. Probably later on writing 2 Corinthians, that was an additional revelation of what happened with the people who are actually here alive who will be transformed in an instance and will get their new bodies, the imperishable bodies, and they will see Jesus face to face. But that's not Paul's concern here. His concern is about the dead. You will see them and you both will see Jesus. Hope in that. And then there's this reunion in 17b at the end. And we shall be always with the Lord. We shall meet the Lord and we shall be with them 
with him forever. I mean, I want you to notice something interesting here in, in these verses. When we think about our loved ones who have died, naturally we're just inclined to think, man, I just can't wait the day when I will see uh, my parents or when I will see my grandparents or when I will see my, my uh, son or my daughter or, or someone that I knew, my best friend who, who passed away. I cannot wait till we just catch up with one another in heaven. And, and as great as this sentiment is, and I'm sure we'll have a lot of time in the eternity to do that, notice that the New Testament authors, when they tell you about the eternal and the heavenly things, They never make it about us chatting about life. They never make it about us catching up with one another and even seeing each other. They make it about both of us seeing Jesus. I mean, that's really comforting. What what that tells me is that the goal of eternity there is not going to be so much about, hey, what are you doing? Hey, how many cities you got? How are you managing? Hey, what's going on? Let's get. We will be with the Lord. The Lord is accented over and over again. And I think it's instructive for us today as we live today that even as we care for one another and as we catch up with one another, serve one another, our main emphasis and our main focus, our main drive is to do what? To be focused on the things of the Lord. And, and for you to get me focused on eternity and for me to get you focused on eternity because that's the goal. He doesn't tell him, hey guys, we'll see your dead ones again. Paul tells him, guys, you're in good hands and they're in good hands. And when they resurrect, you will be before God. You will be with Christ. Now as another side note here, You know, Paul did not write this portion of the letter for us to sharpen our pencils and begin to diagram and chart eschatological diagrams and and, and charts and graphs. And oftentimes I think we especially do this with this passage. We rip it out and we say, when will the Christ come? When will Jesus appear? You know, it doesn't matter if you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, whatever trip you are, The point of this passage is your dead ones will live and hope in God. And whenever you, if you are alive and remain and Christ sounds the trumpet and he comes, he will come and get you. That is the point. The point is how do we as a body please God in our mourning and in our grief for the dead ones? That's the point of this passage. And when we see it in this context, it really becomes glorious and it really becomes hope inspiring He wrote to counsel the worried believers in truth so that they may not despair. Those who identified with Christ in life, those who believed in the gospel, verse 14, in the fact that Jesus died and rose again for them, will be resurrected to spend eternity with Jesus. That is Paul's counsel. That is our hope. So we have Paul's concern that ignorance of doctrine will lead to hopelessness. This is Paul's counsel that if you've identified with Christ in life, you will most definitely spend eternity with him. And number three, verse 18, Paul's comfort. Paul's comfort. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 
I mean, in essence, what Paul is saying is, guys, church, comfort one another with good theology. Comfort one another with good doctrine. You don't have to be filled with hopelessness. You don't have to be filled with anxiety about the death of your loved ones or even the day of your death. And in the final minutes that, that we have here together this morning, I want to comfort you with good theology about what happens about the day of your death and what happens the day after your death. Let, let's, let's allow the word of God and, and this passage here inform us so that we, like Paul calls us to, comfort one another, encourage one another with good, solid teaching instead of speculating. So concerning the day of your death, biblically speaking, church, Everyone dies on time. Everyone dies on time. No one dies early. No one dies late. God is sovereign over every aspect of our life and death, including the circumstances within which we die and the timing of our death. He is sovereign over that. Now, from the human standpoint, if we just, just look the way we tend to think about life and death at times, we lose people early all the time, don't we? I mean, how often you, you, you hear about someone's death, maybe on social media, and, and the comments that you see is, he left us so early. He is only 55 years old. He is only a teen. You know, some of you have lost your parents at a very young age. Some of your siblings passed away even when they were in the womb. You've never got a chance to meet them. I think our first funeral in our church together was a funeral for a three-month-old baby. And so from a human perspective, you look at that and you say, man, that's too Three months of life? It's better, like Job, right? We reason, it's better not to have been born. What happens? He died early. You know, death itself is early when you think about it. Death itself should never have happened. And so when we think about that, we realize that the reason why we experience death in the first place is because of sin. On this side of the fall, it's a reminder of the consequences of our sin. Yet, yet, in all of our despairs, with all of our questions, the scripture is clear. The word of God is true that nothing happens outside of God's good and sovereign will. I mean, let me just read you Job 15 or 14, verse 1. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Verse 5, since his days are determined, the number of his ma uh, months is with you. And his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. 17, done. 55, done. Three months, God's will. Job 12, 10, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Psalm 139, 16, and in your book were 
all written the days that were determined for me. Guys, listen, it does not matter what diet you're on. It doesn't matter what you put on your face. The days are determined. Now, don't get me wrong. It matters to how you will live these days that have been determined for you. So take care of your body. Be responsible about what you've been giving. But if any of you here are thinking that somehow I will add one extra day and will cheat death, listen to the words of God. Your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. And the counter is set. It's counting off. And it's just a matter of time before you and I come to the end of our days. Now, why is this helpful? Listen, knowing sound theology, knowing what the scripture says here, will help you deal with anxiety that inevitably comes when a loved one dies. It will free us from fear and instill hope in us. Not only that, knowing sound theology will help you be relieved of the unnecessary guilt and burdens that we oftentimes carry. I mean, where, where, where some of you may beat yourselves over in situations where you thought that you, have, you may have been able to prevent the death of your loved one. If only you were there. If only you were there to give him this pill. Or if only you were there to comfort him. We can beat ourselves over and over and over again. But understand this, the word of God is true. And if you understand the word of God, you can rest assured that that man, that woman, that child did not live a day less or a day more than what has been determined by God. And I think that gives us hope. Now, concerning the day after your death, what happens when you die? The scripture is also clear. 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Philippians 1.23, Paul contemplates, hey, should I stay or should I go? I kind of want to go, but then I want to stay. But here's what he's saying, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. When I leave this body, I'm automatically with Christ. Remember when the two thieves are hanging on the cross and one of them realizes his sin. He looks to Jesus and he says, Jesus, please remember, with, remember me when you're in your kingdom. And Jesus told him what? Buddy, you will die, and you're going to sleep for a while, and, and you're going to go here and there. No, today you will be with me in paradise, Luke 23, 43. Even here in 1 Thessalonians 10, or 5, verse 10 here, if you look at that. So whatever, wherever we are, if, whether, if we are awake or sleep, we will live together with him. Brothers and sisters, you can rest assured, if you trust Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're in this body or outside of this body, you will be with Jesus the moment you die. There's no annihilation. There's no reincarnation. There's just this hope. What is your hope? It's the result of your faith that must be rooted in verse 14. Because Christ died, you will be resurrected. What's true of Christ is true of you. We're not left to speculate here about the afterlife. We have the authoritative revelation of Christ. And we do ourselves a disservice when we are ignorant about what it says. The scripture prepares us to die. It also prepares us to deal with the death of our loved ones. Final thing, when Paul says comfort one another in verse 18, part of the definition of the word comfort is to make an appeal, to make an appeal to someone. 
And so I want to make an appeal to those who have not yet trusted Christ. If your hope of death and life after death is not rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in verse 14, let me tell you something. You will end up grieving like the hopeless Gentile. But you don't have to be there. You don't have to get there. You have the word of God. You have the clear revelation of God. You're not left to speculate, to fear the coming death, and even grieve like them. You have the remainder. Now is the day. Trust Jesus, verse 14. Trust his death. Trust his resurrection. And be forever looking to the day when you will be with your Lord. And please God, right now, in the way you relate to death and the way you anticipate death. The certainty of Christ's death, brothers and sisters, and resurrection gives us great hope and comfort when grieving the death of fellow Christians and even preparing for our own death. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We appreciate your grace. We appreciate your revelation that guides us, that instructs us. You do not leave us to contemplate about what's to come by ourselves, but we have a sure anchor, your word. And so teach us how to number our days. Teach us how to respond to the death of our loved ones so that our faith would not be shaken, but so that we, it would be even more rooted and deepened knowing that this is a fulfillment of what your word says. And Lord, help us to walk with the awareness and having this eternal perspective on life, waiting for the coming of the Lord and live in the way that pleases you, not only in the way we live, but in the way that we prepare for death. Father, thank you for your instruction. Bless your church. We pray and ask in Christ's name. Amen.